0: On to today's show. Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome John D'Souza to the show. A serial entrepreneur and a strategic investor, John has 20 years of experience founding and investing in technology-enabled companies in the communications, healthcare, finance, and energy industries. Before co-founding Ample, John was a co-founder, president, and CEO of MedHelp, the largest consumer health platform offering tools, device integrations, and communities to millions of people, empowering them to manage their own health. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Excited to be here. John, I'm excited to speak to you. John, before we dig into Ample, I'd like to learn about how you grew up in ethiopia you know uh,
1: for me africa is a very special place in my heart and and i think uh, being born in ethiopia uh, goes through and sets a lot of things for you in place that that color the rest of your life um and it sounds like you've spent uh, a significant amount of time there as well i think when you spend time in africa i think the thing you realize is that the people are happy and i think that's one thing that has uh, sort of colored a lot of my life is is, uh, you know, happiness in many parts is, is a decision you make and you can see people there that don't have a lot, but are happy. And I, I think that has, uh, has been the philosophy that I've adopted for a lot of it. It's, you wake up in the morning and you make a decision. Do you want, do you want to be happy or not? And, and that sort of colors the rest of your day. So being there for me, it's wonderful people, wonderful place, uh, and, and a place that has taught me a lot.
0: You know, that's interesting. And you mentioned we were speaking before we started recording here. And my family's from East Africa, my dad's from Uganda, my mom's from Kenya. And there were many times we would go back and visit from London, go to Kenya, spend time there with my grandparents. And, you know, might be TMI for the show, but my mom is one of nine sisters. And I look at where they grew up, how they grew up. And when I was to visit my aunts and uncles, all living in these relatively modest housing, you know, multiple generations together. And to your point, I guess, to some extent, I look back and I think, is it because they didn't know what else was out there? Is it because they were, to your point, decided to be happy? But I did feel a sense of happiness and joy there. And, you know, as you know, some of the eating habits from there really resonate with me. The idea of community eating, meaning you almost share a plate or the plate is put in front of you and everyone takes from there. No one has like their individual knives and forks and set up. So I I feel like a, a lot of that happiness came from that communal feeling.
1: My my mother's uh, born in Ethiopia, my father in uh, Tanzania, and my mother was uh, 10 brothers and sisters as well. I know exactly what you mean because we do, in Ethiopia, you all eat from the same plate. Uh, but there's an interesting, at the end of it, <clears throat> I learned very quickly that you don't eat too much during the meal because at the end of it, all the uh, elder people will come in and feed the younger people to make sure that they've eaten enough and it comes from a lot of the, the food and food shortages in the country. But it teaches you that sharing and caring and, making sure that you think of others, uh, which I think has been, uh, just been instrumental. But I'll tell you one on a, uh, on a slight uh, note, I'll tell you that philosophy. <clears throat> I was I was gone to uh, Dar and I was going to go for a run in the morning and I met this person and asked him, uh, you know, where I should go running. And he asked me, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to run. He goes, but are you going to run to the market to buy something? Are you going to run, go meet somebody? <laughs> I said, no, I'm, I'm going to run. He goes, you're just going to run? And I said, yes. He said, Hakuna matata. Then go run, <laughs> and it. I think. I think it really sets the the mentality is very different. You get so tied up with I think a lot of things of being productive, going and doing something, and it really is hakuna matata. And
0: uh, it, it it just said you know I just need to go in and enjoy my run. <laughs> so it, is, it, it teaches us a lot. I, I totally understand. I totally understand the feeling. Now I mentioned ample at the top of the show. Like to fast forward. Can you give the audience, an overview of Ample and your role at the organization? So
1: uh,
0: at Ample, we are a company
1: that's uh, developed a modular battery swapping solution uh, that can work with, pre- e- with pretty much any EV out there. Um, this company I co-founded with uh, Khaled Hasuna. Uh, he's actually a dear friend and somebody I've had the pleasure uh, to work with for for 16 years. After we' sold the previous company, we spent some time together and I keep on joking that Ample was an excuse for us to keep on working together. <laughs> when when you have a co-founder that, uh, or a, a person that you sort of trust implicitly and enjoy working with, it sort of really brings joy to your life. Uh, we, we knew we wanted to work together and, and were looking at a lot of things. And we realized very quickly that solving the infrastructure problem was going to be uh, the key solution to actually having wide adoption of EVs. Uh, and so when you looked at it and realized that the infrastructure was course, was holding it back. Uh, we decided we should go through and tackle it. And, and so we developed this uh, battery swapping solution.
0: Can you walk us through how the battery swapping works? Yeah, I'll go through how it works, but let's just talk about
1: second about the, the problem as well that we were uh, trying to tackle. When we were looking at it, uh, at uh, charging solutions, it just uh, <clears throat> it didn't make sense to us that what people at a high level were trying to do was to get a billion people plus to go over and move from one technology, which is gas cars to EVs uh, that in many ways were a much, or was a much worse experience. You People could go and spend a few minutes and get a full tank of gas, but you're going to move them to something where they could have to spend uh, an hour or multiple hours waiting for a charge. And we didn't think that that was going to happen at scale until you made it at least as good, ideally better. And so we wanted to go through and find a way to, to allow people to get uh, a similar experience to gas, basically come in, spend a few minutes, get a full charge, and leave. But we realized, in, and battery swapping has been tried many, many uh, times. You know, you can go back uh, uh, to the forties and find battery swapping solutions. What we realized that there were a couple of big drawbacks that prevented it from being uh, just adopted universally. And the two drawbacks that we wanted to tackle was we wanted to come up with a way to go through and make a car swappable, work with OEMs without asking them to rebuild the car. And that is a key here. If you need to go through and ask every OEM to rebuild the car around your solution, you're not going to get very far. The second solution that we wanted to go through and uh, and find was we wanted to find a way to be able to use the same batteries across cars. And it's similar to gas. When you go to a gas station, you don't worry about what car you have, you just put the gas in. And so those were the two problems that we went through and, and solved. Uh, and that allowed us to come with a solution that uh, has all the convenience and uh, uh, ease of gas, but at the same time is quick to deploy and and very cost effective. So that's the, the context behind it. In terms of the specific details of the solution, we came up with a modular battery swapping, and that was a big shift from uh, what had been done before. Onsole companies, uh, tackling this prior to us, went through and were doing pack-level swapping. They take out the entire battery in one piece, and the Battery pack and weigh a lot. Rather than do that, we actually developed these smaller modules that are you know, easier to rearrange to fit into different vehicles, easier to remove and replace as well. And so that's uh, half the solution is come up with a modular batteries well helping solution. And the second was to go through and actually uh, come up with a way to let the same batteries work across different cars. And we came up with these smart battery modules that go through and uh, and work in different vehicles. Uh, And so the experience is pretty simple. Somebody drives into a swapping station. uh, A robot takes out the the modules, replaces those modules with uh, with fully charged modules. Those are put into a car, and then the car can can even drive away.
0: So, are you working with manufacturers to design a battery that fits what they're currently currently using?
1: So, what we do is uh, we we are working with multiple uh, OEMs, but what we do is we we take on that engineering literally by just saying, we'll go through and, and rearrange it and come up with an adapter plate that allows our batteries to work in their car without having them to change the car. Uh, what we work with them, a lot of the collaboration work with them, is to go through and f- effectively say, allow uh, the customers, and initially we we're selling auto fleets, when they purchase uh, the vehicle, uh, make it easy for them to receive uh, the vehicles with our battery uh, pre-installed. So there's a lot of work that goes in that in terms of coordinating and making sure it's it's easy for the customer to, to uh, buy the buy the cars with the ample battery
0: in it. And just for clarification for the audience that's OEM is original equipment manufacturer.
1: Correct. So those are the, the all the different car manufacturers out there.
0: Now, I've watched the video. I think it's pretty phenomenal, but can you describe what the actual footprint of the battery swapping facility looks like? So we currently take two parking
1: spaces. Um, and there's no construction involved. What we realized is that when you look at chargers or even different types of uh, swapping uh, stations, and primarily other than our solution, you do see swapping uh, being done pretty aggressively in China. So when you go and look at some of the stations there, uh, there's a lot of construction gets, uh, gets uh, involved in that. What we go through and do is we came up with a solution where you don't need to do it. It literally is something you, you can go through and assemble in two parking spaces, connect it into to power and you're up and up and running. So it's a pretty small footprint. It takes about four or five days to assemble. It takes a couple of days if you need to disassemble it and, and move it to a different location.
0: And how many batteries do you keep on hand in one of your facilities? Yeah, we, we can vary between,
1: uh, I'd say on average right now, we probably have about 10 uh, batteries. You can go more or less depending on what the demand is. So as you go through, understand what it is. Uh, you can you can go through and optimize that depending on uh, on 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 the traffic. And what do you do
0: with the batteries at the end of life?
1: So thinking about that is uh, is really important. The problem that uh, I think a lot of places have is that it is it is very hard to go through and extract the cells from uh, from the modules or from the battery packs. So we spend a lot of time to go through. Uh, and first uh, in the first life of the vehicle. Uh, make sure that you don't decrease the number of cycles by fast charging it or 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 using it in a way that decreases uh, the lifespan of the battery. So by being able to control how we charge it in the sparking stations, we can get a lot more uh, a lot more cycles out of it. In addition, in uh, in the vehicle as well, you often have thermal buildup. You drive and charge, drive charge, and again the batteries get pretty hot, and again that results in In fewer cycles so by treating them well when you drive and after that you take out hot batteries and bring cool batteries in uh, you control the temperature and and can optimize the life of the battery so the first thing in terms of thinking about being green is get as many cycles as you can of this in the first life in the second life once you take it out you make it have to make it very simple to be able to go and use it for other applications such as static storage and because these are smart batteries you can use them the way they are without having to go through and strip it down and calibrate and rebuild so that makes it easy to use it in the second life, and then finally all the way to recycling. The key part thing in recycling is to make easy access uh, to the components, and so we've done a lot of work there to say once you get all the way to the end, it's very easy to go through, uh, get down to the cells and other other components out there, and have them
0: recycled. Just yesterday, I was on a call with a VC, and he was telling me about a company that's making a recyclable polymer or glue that enables batteries to be broken down easier at the end of life and i thought what an interesting opportunity that that brings you know to, to something like what you're doing yeah, and part of that is a lot of people do use different types of adhesives and all to uh to keep it in
1: place uh all, all the cells in place and so trying to minimize that really simplifies getting access to the cells there's a lot of times you have and you're getting pretty green cells right now uh but you you go through and sort of take away that advantage if you go through and, and glue all of it together. And so I think it is it is really imperative, one, to think about how to get easy access. And I think people are coming out with different types of polymers or adhesives that make it easy to to go through and access those uh, would really help in recycling it.
0: Now, I used to be part of the automotive industry many, many years ago, different life. And I know one of the challenges is specifically around warranties. You know, there's sometimes argument depend, depending on the upgrades you do to your car, for example, if you put your own computer chip in, it, it might void the warranty, et cetera. How do you handle some of the potential warranty issues around when you're, when you're exchanging these batteries? So we work with the, again, with the uh, auto companies, the OEMs,
1: <clears throat> and the work that we do with them is to uh, to make sure we've gone through all of the necessary testing certification to get them comfortable with what we do. Uh, now, we provide the warranty on the battery. So if there is an issue with the uh, battery, uh, we go through and take care of it. But the same thing also very easy for us to, to go through and maintain it. Right now, if you look at an um, electric vehicle, if there's a problem with the battery, it's a pretty costly for them to go in, take that battery out, understand what's wrong, and replace it. So you try your best as an, uh, as an OEM to avoid that. For us, the car is coming in continuously and having batteries replaced. So, for example, if there's an issue with the module, all we do is we, we mark it as this needs to be serviced, The next time it gets swapped out, it doesn't get swapped into another vehicle and it can go get serviced. So if we even needed to replace, you know, modules in every car out there, within a week, we should have all of them come in and we should be able to go and replace it. So our model makes it very easy to handle warranty and replacement issues, um, which is, I think, really important with batteries. You want to have easy access and easy ability to go through and and change them if necessary.
0: Now, you mentioned fleet earlier. Are you starting... If you go to market initially with fleets, correct. So
1: initial target is to go through and 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 tackle fleets. The reason we went after uh, fleets is because uh, they have a very tough problem moving to electric. It's one thing when you take twenty cars, but if you try and move a hundred or a thousand vehicles over to electric, all these problems uh, really get uh, magnified. So if you're trying to do one charger, even if it costs you fifteen twenty thousand dollars, you can do it. But if you're going through and doing a a thousand of them that quickly becomes prohibitive to be able to go through and uh, and end it also the the logistics of charging the vehicles and and trying to figure out what rotations you would go through uh is difficult and then lastly you often don't have enough power because when all the cars come in and you hit those peaks you you need to get upgrades and that could easily take 18 months 36 months to try and get any sort of upgrade and and then be very expensive so we realized the situation for fleets was pretty serious and we, we looked at uh, the sort of history, a lot of fleets committed to going electric. They started purchasing cars and then called it quits pretty quickly because they realized how challenging it was. So we realized that if we could go through and solve the problem for, for fleets, we would have a dramatic impact in the number of EVs out there. And a lot of those uh, those fleets also drive significant miles. So if you can move the those vehicles that drive the largest number of miles, that's where you have the largest impact on uh, decarbonization.
0: It sounds like you're almost helping them by their offshoring or outsourcing some of their logistics work to you. Correct,
1: for them in terms of going through and do it, logistically, it's the same as a gas station. So they actually don't need to think about uh, how you change your operations, It, it you keep that the same. But, this, uh, but on the other hand, you actually outsource all the infrastructure to us. We take care of uh, building it, we manage it, uh, they don't need to worry about it. So for them, it's almost they're able to move from gas to electric operationally keep it the same, uh, but actually go through and do it uh, profitably because we charge them less energy than gas on a per kilometer basis. So it's a it's a, actually a great way for them to move from gas to electric and actually save some money in the process.
0: It sounds like you can almost use your work with fleets to plan or map your footprint as to where you're going to put your charging stations.
1: You're exactly right. That's the advantage of starting off with uh, fleets as well. Is they can give you their heat maps. They can tell you exactly where the vehicles are going. What's the geography? So we see that and we use that to go and understand exactly where we need to deploy the stations. You go through deploy to get them the coverage they need. And that, uh, that allows us down the road that when we do go to consumers, they can just leverage the same footprint uh, that we're using for fleets. But we outsource all that, we work with them, we understand where they need to get them deployed and then deployed in those locations.
0: Now, you mentioned that your facility takes up two parking spots. Is there a revenue opportunity for the place where you put your units?
1: Correct. And and we do have uh, multiple of the energy companies as uh, investors and partners, companies such as Shell, Repsol, um, you have ENIOS in japan uh, ptt in thailand so a lot of different of these where they already have real estate in different places so we can go through and, and work with them and there are multiple sort of synergies and revenue opportunities there uh because when you look at the two they work really well together so it is uh, depending on what the uh the owner of land are they an energy company or the real estate company there are different ways to partner with them uh, but there are very uh, good ways to sort of uh, increase the revenue for the location as well, uh, because you you know who's coming in, you know approximately when, and you know they're going to come in regularly. So you have a lot of information about who's coming in. So I think there are, there are good ways to go through and, and get a good uh, partnership between the two.
0: That's kind of what I was thinking. I was imagining for a moment, if I may, let's just call it, for argument's sake, a Kroger. And we put one of your ample units in the Kroger parking lot, taking up two parking spots, but it also draws traffic, people coming through, and also additional revenue.
1: Exactly. And you, you know that they're coming in. You can also do an interesting uh, a connection between, in this case, it would be Kroger, where we can tell somebody, the person is going to come in, they can pre-order stuff, have it ready for when uh, they come there. So because you have more visibility on who's coming, when they're coming, and you can have a nice bi-directional relationship on the way there, you can quickly increase the services that you can provide the customer.
0: That's very interesting. Now, you mentioned moving to electric. And there's a lot of awareness right now about going green, moving to electric. What are your thoughts on where we are on that trajectory? And what are your thoughts on everyone going green?
1: So I think one of the myths of electric is that uh, going electric is going green. And I think you need to dig a little bit deeper into that to to see if that's really the case. That works well if you, if you can then Uh, go on renewable energy for multiple years. Uh, And there are different people talk about different price points that you need to drive at least 40,000 miles on renewable energy for it to be overall uh, green. Uh, The reason is that often the electric car itself may have a larger footprint. And if you look at often what's happening right now is somebody buys a new electric car, has a higher footprint, uh, they could be fast charging that car. Uh, If you look at the mix of the energy going into it, It's not renewable energy, often it could, and if it's fast charging, it's definitely not. And so they could be using uh, energy that's not as clean as it should be. And they keep the car for a few years, but then when the battery starts dropping, they get rid of the car. And that car, uh, right now, the second-hand market for many of the EVs is not that strong. And so that car may reach its end of life. If you look at that, it's still not a great uh, value proposition for the environment. So what we're trying to do is to say, this could work if you could do a few things. People like to keep the car for longer, so you need to make it easy for them to uh, to go through and and be able to keep it. With our technology, as you as newer battery technologies come out, you can use that in your car. So when you look five years from now, your car might go 60 percent further than when you bought it because you will have new cells going in. So the ability to use the car for a longer time uh, definitely is uh, it helps you. At the end of <clears throat> when you want to get rid of it, you can sell it to somebody else, and they're able to enter in the secondary market because they don't need to worry about the battery. So I think you solve that problem. Second is the upfront cost. Buying the vehicle without the battery and just doing a battery subscription decreases the uh, upfront cost of the car by at least a third. So it, it makes it a lot more affordable and uh, accessible uh, to more people as you go in and, and look in that. And then finally, we don't need to fast charge it. So, and we separate charging the batteries from delivering the energy to the car. So we can take renewable energy and use that to fill the batteries and deliver that very quickly to the car when it's there. So by solving those different points of how do you drop the upfront costs? How do you help people keep the car for a longer period of time? How do you get renewable energy effectively into the car very quickly? You now can make this a very green proposition. And so that's been our focus of saying people are doing this move to EVs to help the environment. We better make sure we're solving that because always we've, we've sort of Lost the primary reason we're doing this.
0: And you mentioned something very interesting there. You mentioned battery subscription. So it sounds like a recurring revenue model for you. Correct.
1: For us, we have two uh, revenue streams one is the battery subscription, and the other is just energy. Uh, energy, you think of it like gas, you're being paid per mile. So those are the two uh, revenue streams. We do have sort of high visibility on that because you're working with fleets, they're using these cars for multiple years. Uh, it's very predictable in terms of the mileage they're doing. Uh, so it is a predictable long-term recurring revenue. Uh, so from a business model perspective, it's it's pretty attractive.
0: And where are you in your business life cycle right now? So we, we spent, um,
1: uh, if you look two to three years ago, we spent a lot of time doing the initial pilots and tests of the the technology to demonstrate that it goes through and works. Uh, last year was our gear in terms of doing commercial deployment. We went through and, and commercially deployed it. Uh, and particularly use it with uh, ride-sharing drivers in order to show that from ride-sharing driver, it's commercially viable. That's interesting when you look at the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, prior, prior to our offering, almost all of the fleet offerings of EVs to ride-sharing drivers had closed down. And the prime reason for that is that if you're a ride-sharing driver and you're spending 10 to 12 hours a week at a charger charging your EV, you're going to earn uh, significantly less revenue. And so what we did last year was go through run and And demonstrate that uh, you can earn comparable amount of money uh, driving an EV as you can gas and in fact if the energy on the EV costs you less you'll actually uh, make it more profitable for you make the same top-line revenue but spend less on energy so we went through and uh, ended that this year the focus is is scaling we're scaling uh, in the U.S. we're scaling the barrier as well as other cities in the U.S. Uh, but we'll also start uh, scaling mid-year in Europe uh, and then uh, towards the end of year in Asia. So this key focus for us is to uh, work with large fleets and we're focusing fleets that want to move thousands or tens of thousands of vehicles over to electric uh, and partnering with them to go through and deploy the infrastructure to make that conversion possible.
0: So you mentioned the Bay Area a couple of times. What other cities are you working with? So in the US, we'll be looking
1: at, uh, uh, we mentioned uh, in New York, we did a press release, a very good uh, partner there in Sally that we'll go through. Uh, there'll be other cities in California like LA, or of course, it will go in through uh, Chicago, Denver. The, the focus for us in terms of cities are cities where they're, they're being very supportive of the transition to uh, electric. Uh, so we're looking at those cities and saying, let's start with those. And in, in Europe, similarly, uh, there are multiple cities that are really uh, being supportive and providing you the infrastructure you need to make the transition. Cities like uh, uh, Madrid, Lisbon, Uh, Paris, Berlin, London, those are being very supportive. So the other advantage of going after uh, uh, these big cities is it's hard to get charges in there. They don't have the grids that can support it. Uh, So our solution works really well in these dense cities where it's a small footprint. It doesn't have a high peak power and so we can deploy it very quickly. And it doesn't take that many stations within a city to give you good geographic coverage.
0: I don't know about the cities you mentioned, but I'm familiar with London and I know parking is a premium.
1: You know, the the parking is a pretty. uh, The good thing with it is, you can get uh, parking lots there where you can get two spaces, uh, which is uh, which often is a a good way to start if you look at those. Uh, And you can get those two spaces. You can go through deploy it and get it up and running. So it's a pretty small footprint, and the flexibility of saying this can be two spaces uh, that are. It could be at a gas station in London. There are only a few gas stations that have uh, that, but it could also be. Um, at a grocery store, it could be at a parking lot. So it gives you a lot of flexibility in terms of where you could go through and deploy it.
0: So the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you're doing. You're a, I think, three-time entrepreneur, you've sold companies, but you don't have any previous experience in the energy sector. What drew you to this opportunity and what keeps you going?
1: I think what what um, actually across all of these, and it's very similar to my partner, Colin uh, when you go through and look at it, I think sometimes when you come into a new space uh, with a different perspective, it allows you to see opportunity there. If you're in a space for a long time, it, it can be very hard to, to change the way you think. So I, I think that's one is both of us are comfortable going into a new space where we may not know that much about it and say we're willing to look at it from a fresh perspective and then invest the tremendous amount of time it takes to go through it and, and learn about it and, and get comfortable with it. Uh, what drew us to the specific opportunities we were both looking at Potentially, by, we happen to be upgrading our cars at the same time, and we're looking at EVs and very quickly realize the challenges that it will have. And a lot of people say, well, if you're an individual, you can charge it at home at work. But then what happens the first time you go somewhere else um, you know, you, and you're stuck, uh, you know, it's Thanksgiving, you're stuck in a five-hour line uh, to get your car charged. You only need a few of these experiences for it to create a tremendous amount of anxiety for you every time you go through and, and drive it. I, I know people that were driving back from Tahoe and being a snowstorm, car is sidelined. You wait a few hours to get a tow truck to pull it. It's just a horrible experience. So, you don't want owning a car to, a, a, to add a tremendous amount of stress and anxiety to your life. And we realized that this is what it, uh, this transition to EV is going to be like for a lot of people. Uh, and so, we said, if we can solve this, will help the transition, but will also take away the the stress that people have. It's not range anxiety, it's charging anxiety. It's so what happens, somebody would give you a car that at 150 mile range and you'd have no range anxiety because you know when it runs out, you can just go to a gas station and fill it up. And we realize that it's this charging anxiety that people have that if we solve, we'll make this transition fast and and frictionless.
0: Now in doing research on you for this interview, I came across a couple of quotes and I thought they're very interesting. The first one, it says, My co founder and I connected on this idea of doing things that are very improbable, but possible. Where does that spirit come from? You know, I, I, I think
1: both uh, of us, both, you know, both of us are, are immigrants. Um, a lot of life felt that way. <laughs> is uh, You know, a, a lot of life is um, that we're going through is that things are possible and you get very comfortable with improbable. And you know that if you put a lot of work and all, you make that improbable slightly less improbable. I'll show you a simple example of that. Coming to the U.S. to study was highly improbable. Um, and uh, we didn't have much money. Uh, we couldn't pay for it. Uh, and having come in and, and studied at at MIT, at, at UPenn, um, was highly improbable. So I realized that a lot of times that if there is a path I'm willing to put in the work, uh, a tremendous amount of work to find it and and make it possible. So I'm I'm very, very comfortable in in that. The one thing I will say that is, uh, as people looked at, uh, you know, a lot of time when you're in that zone, a lot of people are telling you it's not possible and uh, and dissuading you to do it. So you need to have the drive that comes from within, uh, because if you don't, You'll give up on this very quickly, <laughs> so you need you, you need to be able to go there and uh, and, and push through. But this, at, at the same time, I think as you uh, you know you go through, you also need to continuously reassess it to make sure that uh, you are on the right path and and you can get run. But I, I think if I were to if I look at my full life, that path of believing that there is a path in the improbable is something that does uh, serve me really well.
0: And The second quote. And I heard you mention this on another interview. How you're perceived is how you feel. It is
1: an interesting one, and I'll, I'll tell you uh, in, in a way. A lot of times when I've gone through and tried to do things, people have told me this uh, phrase of uh, "You're not one of the tribe." <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, it's it's been it's been over and over yeah. for different you know. Uh, you know we didn't have much money when you were in high school I know you're not one of the people with money or applying to colleges you know who who do you think you're you're not one of those it, it could be in the valley and you're not one of the, the the insiders there and so I feel that a lot of life is people going through and telling you um that people don't perceive you in a certain way <laughs> that they perceive you go through and and, uh, and perceive you differently so I, I came up with a way maybe it's just in a way to to Make myself uh, understand it, but I realize that if you work very hard and you go through at that level, people are competing on 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 a fair playing ground. I feel, you know, if, you're, if I'm going through and trying to get into MIT and I work really hard, I've good grades. It's, I feel it's a pretty pretty fair. I feel where you have that advantage is when you're not that good. <laughs> so if if I if I wasn't willing to work that hard and I was competing against somebody who was part of the tribe, I would, I, I would have no chance to choose somebody from the tribe. And so I justified myself at a very young age and said, the way for me to solve this problem about perception and how people go through it is to put in the work. Because in the end, uh, you know, it goes back to you, you want to be so good they can't ignore you. Uh, and so for me, it was it's put in the work so they can't ignore you. And I put in a tremendous amount of work uh, to, to go through and and, and put myself there a chance to say that they can now go through and, and see what I can do and judge me based on that.
0: That leads nicely to my next question, which is, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself in your journey? I think there are two. In terms of myself, I,
1: I really do believe it's is it's wanting to be happy. I'll say it goes back to what we spoke about at the start. Is life, I, I don't believe you can lead life in a set of series journeys. You need to learn to live lives in parallel, uh, and you you need to spend time at uh, the your life, doing things that you enjoy. And I always ask people, you know, if you have an hour of free time suddenly, what would you use that hour for? And it tells you a lot about what you value. And I, I, I try to align my life so I'm working on things that I value and I enjoy. And that makes everything a lot a uh, lot more fun to, uh, to do. But I also try and do things in parallel. So if I'm going to go and give a talk, if I can take my parents with me, take my children with me and do things in, in parallel sort of, combine them it it allows you to not postpone uh, living so i think for me uh sort of thinking about happiness uh, and uh, and what it takes to be happy and then figure out how you can combine things uh have been really important to say let me work on things i enjoy let me do spend it with the people i care about uh and that makes every day you know really
0: special so begs the question if you had an hour of free time what would you do what would you do you know,
1: I do spend a lot of uh, time, so sort of old-fashioned, actually talking to people <laughs> and uh, people, boys, I, I'm i not as big on messaging as I am on getting on the phone and talking to people. So I do enjoy, I, I, I do enjoy, I enjoy spending time with people and especially the people I care about. Um, you know, it might be uh, tomorrow's my uh, aunt in India, she's going to be I think 94 or 95. Um, and you have free time, getting on the phone and talking to her. You learn so much, I think, from from everybody around you. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a side note. Before I had children, I was I was thinking, you know, it's funny. You're thrown into being a parent, and you have no qualifications for being a parent. <laughs> and so think about that. It's a like, it's, it's a bizarre piece. For so much of your life, you spend so much time getting trained and being ready to for that. But then you suddenly you're thrown into being a parent, and and you you know nothing about it. So I went through and spent uh, this time prior to it speaking to probably a couple hundred people over time, learning their experiences, what worked, what didn't work. And it was a phenomenal insight. So it taught me a lot about uh, parenting in the process, but it also taught me just a lot about you learn from other people, uh, regardless of what they are. Everybody has something to teach you. The question is, can you figure out what they have to, or make them comfortable enough to share with you what they want to
0: teach you? You know, John, I think we're very similar in that vein, and my wife might get a little annoyed with me sharing this, but prior to getting married, I actually went out and interviewed people that were divorced, single, and married, and asked them the questions about why. And I did some, you know, back-of-the-napkin research, and I know it sounds very analytical. No doubt that I loved it, but I was making a huge commitment, so I wanted to ensure that I was making a decision based on some data. And same thing with children. You know, we talked to a lot of people before we had children. And jokingly nowadays, I tell people, even though I have a 13 year old, I say, look, we're still a first time parent. So we're just learning as we go.
1: <laughs> you know, you're, you're and I realize now why, you know, uh, grandparents sort of really enjoy their grandchildren is, you know, I feel a lot of being a parent is you're, you're running experiments. By the time you get the data back, it's no longer relevant to you because your children are older. <laughs> and you're in this horrible cycle of doing all this stuff and then you realize it and go, oh, but now I know I'm a five-year-old, i have a seven-year-old, I'm a nine-year-old. And so by the time you're a grandparent, you suddenly have this wealth of information that is suddenly relevant. Well, <laughs> uh, You're exactly right. I, I, feel, I felt exactly that way is that you need a way to change that cycle so that you actually can get some information that's useful to you while you need it.
0: it it's funny because I've heard a joke or a saying that says, grandparents and grandchildren share, the, share a common enemy. It's the parent. <laughs> I have to know that, right. I'm sure my uh, children would probably relate. <laughs> so let's move into the future. It's 2030. If Fast Company, Fortune Magazine, pick a publication, were to write a headline about ample and I'm sure you've you know done this over strategic sessions, what would you like it to read? If I think we across the 2030. Uh, I, I hope it is so
1: ubiquitous that' it's, you know you don't even think twice about it you know it's almost like being a gas station at that point where you're not going through uh I, if i want to think about what you think about ample is just that i i think we saw it early we came of a solution that worked and we were stubborn or uh, you know persistent enough to keep on going we spoke to 245 investors when we did our first round, and most of them told us we were crazy. <laughs> uh, you know, I keep on joking when you know you always have to. If look when when a lot of people are telling you it's crazy, and if there's somebody crazy in the room, it, it might be you. And you have you know we definitely had to go back in and and revisit this multiple times. Because people told us a long list of reasons why it was technically impossible, why the why the car companies would never work with us, why. And so we at a long risk, if you look at 2030, I hope that and they'll say that it's, it's good that uh, the company as a whole was stubborn and persistent enough to to go through and, and, and chase this down. Because I really don't think we'll get to 2030 and, and be electric if, if we don't solve uh, battery swapping.
0: I agree with you. My last question is, and you used a very interesting, um, I guess, analogy, metaphor earlier from an engineer's point of view regarding parallel and series. <laughs> but um, if you could share some advi- advice, words of wisdom, with or recommendations with the audience, what would it be?
1: You know, I I, I do think we be, we're living in a very special time right now, um, and as mentioned, I've done multiple startups. We are at a time where literally you could uh, pursue anything you wanted uh, and make a living doing it. That was not true before, and I, if you look back ten or fifteen years, i spent a lot of people saying. You know, look at your dreams and understand whether it's a hobby or a profession. I actually think right now you could do anything you wanted. Do it well and and make a living. So it really does beg your answer. If, if that is the case, then we at a time where you need to decide whether you just let inertia be your guide to your life or whether you actually want to pursue your dreams. Because you can. There's, there is no reason right now not to do it. And I push every say, with all the resources, with all the access that we have, uh, you know, are, are you ready to to sort of take the leap.
0: Well, John, I think pursue your dreams is a great place to end. I look forward to your continued success with Ample and catching up with you again soon. Thank you very
1: much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thank you, John. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic, you'd like to hear about send me an email btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website nexuspmg.com and while you're there you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors bigger than us is a nexus pmg production